I wake up, I sacrifice. I get them ready. I try to have it all under control. To at least look like I can handle it. It looks so easy for other moms, but I'm struggling. It feels like I'm failing. At the end of the day, I ask myself, am I enough? I never settle. I never compromise. I show them I'm strong and qualified. I work harder, stay longer, and push away distractions. I don't have time for anything else, for anyone else. If I can keep this up just a few more years, they'll be convinced. They'll no longer wonder, am I enough? I envy, I covet, I compare, I put on the mask, I push myself to look like that, fit into that, be like that. I work myself to the point of exhaustion, till I can't take it anymore. And for what? For whom? Because at the end of the night, I still don't know. Am I enough? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am near to all who call upon my name. My mercies are new every morning. My love never fails. Am I enough? Amen. Yes, he is. Great to be with you, Purpose Church. Uh, before we dig into our study today, I just want to uh, just encourage you uh, to come out this afternoon from 4 to 6. We've got our Building for Generations 150th Anniversary Campaign, and it is going to be a great time for the whole family. We've got programmatics uh, from uh, nursery, uh, infants, right on through 8th grade. They've got uh, popcorn and movies and games for the, the kids and for the students and dessert fellowship for everybody. Then the adults will gather under the tents and high school and above. I'd encourage high schoolers to be there. It's your future we're talking about here, your generation uh, that we want to reach for Christ and the ones uh, beyond that as well. I'm going to talk about our history a little bit as a church, uh, cast a vision for the future and how you and I can be involved together in seeing this dream accomplished. So really encourage you this afternoon, 4 to 6 p.m., would just love to see you here for our Buildings for Generation uh, program this afternoon under the tents on our campus. Uh, today, we're going to continue our series in the wilderness that we've been doing this fall. And today, we're going to be studying comparisons in the wilderness. And I just want you to know, as your pastor, I am so passionate about this subject. Uh, the thing that robs joy uh, from people more than about anything else is is comparison. It just destroys our happiness, uh, whether it's in person with other people or whether especially on social media like Facebook and Instagram. 
uh, so much of our joy in following the Lord and fulfilling His unique purpose for our lives is wiped away when we start comparing ourselves uh, to other people. And so I just want you to know, as your pastor, I've just been praying, oh Lord, uh, speak through me because I believe that this will free us uh, from God's word. Uh, We will know the truth and the truth will set us free from the bondage and the tyranny of comparisons. Uh, President Teddy Roosevelt um, once said, comparison is the thief of joy. Now, Teddy Roosevelt found that in his life, uh, when he started to compare himself with others, it was a thief of joy. And this is coming from the guy that ended up on Mount Rushmore. (laughs) Okay. So if Teddy Roosevelt thought that by comparing himself to others, it robbed his joy, he's one of the guys that ended up on Mount Rushmore. Certainly, this is going to be something that all of us uh, struggle with. You know, one of the the another historical illustration that just really uh, has been so powerful for me. Um, the counselors of Florence asked Leonardo da Vinci, then Italy's, uh, here's Leonardo da Vinci, then uh, Italy's most celebrated artist to submit sketches for the decorations of the Grand Hall at Florence. One of the counselors had heard of a young and little known artist who had also done good work by the name of Michelangelo and asked him to submit sketches also. The sketches of Leonardo were superb in keeping with his genius. But when the counselor saw the sketches of Michelangelo, there was a spontaneous expression of wonder and enthusiasm. News of this reached Leonardo. He also heard that one of the counselors had said, Leonardo is getting old. He was never able to get over the eclipse of his fame by Michelangelo, and the remaining years of his life were clouded with gloom and sorrow. So here's Leonardo da Vinci, one of the greatest men that ever lived. His last part of his life, he was depressed because when he compared himself to this up-and-coming young Michelangelo, it made him defensive, and it was a thief, like Teddy Roosevelt said, a thief of his joy. You know, one thing that makes this story even more poignant is right around the time I first heard this, I saw a list of the hundred greatest people that ever lived, a hundred most accomplished people in all of human history, of all the people that have ever lived. Leonardo da Vinci was number 67 on that list. Michelangelo was number 77. So just think about Think about the irony of that for a moment. That the 67th greatest man that ever lived spent the last years of his life depressed because of the accomplishments of the 77th most accomplished person, greatest person that ever lived. And that's just the tyranny of comparison. It's illogical and it just destroys so much of our happiness. Uh, Here's another item that uh, I, I love. There's a fable wherein the devil once was crossing the Libyan desert and met a group of friends, uh, fellow uh, demons, tempting a holy hermit. They tried seductions of the flesh, used doubts and fears, etc., but to no avail, the holy man was unmoved. The devil then stepped forward. Your methods are way too crude. Permit me one moment. Going to the hermit, he said, have you heard the news? Your brother has just been made the bishop of Alexandria. 
According to the fable, a scowl of malignant jealousy clouded the serene face of the holy man. And so many times we can face all kinds of uh, temptations that we might uh, deal with. But when we start comparing ourselves to other people, that's when Satan can rob us of our joy. A comparison is a trap. And I believe that we're especially vulnerable to that trap when we're in the wilderness, as we're going to see uh, with Moses and Miriam and Aaron here in, in the story that I'm starting with. But for us in, in, in COVID or in whatever wilderness we're facing, I think we're most vulnerable under the stress of the wilderness uh, to the temptation to comparison, uh, which robs us of our joy. Uh, let's pick up with the first story of in the wilderness. Uh, Numbers 21, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Now, many Bible scholars believe that there is racism uh, go going on here. Uh, this is the only time in the Bible that somebody criticizes an interracial marriage, and God is going to come down hard on Miriam and on Aaron. Now, God does speak against uh, a believer marrying a non-believer. That, that is something that's throughout Scripture, cover to cover. Uh, believers are to marry other believers, not non-believers. But this is, this is not anything to do with that. This is, this is a racial thing. And so here's the only time in the Bible we have somebody criticizing an interracial marriage and God comes down hard and he judges them for that. Uh, these are Moses' sister and brother, and the attack is led by Miriam uh, because her name is mentioned first and the feminine singular verb in the Hebrew that starts the chapter is literally, and she spoke. Uh, this is why God comes down harder on Miriam uh, more so than Aaron uh, later on in the story. Now, this is really a smokescreen issue. The real issue is revealed in verse 2. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they ask. They compared their ministry to Moses' ministry, and they were envious. They were jealous. Uh, has he spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now, this is the, the whole problem with comparison. Miriam and Aaron are, are probably uh, in the top 100 Bible characters, at least in the Old Testament, if not in the entire Bible. But they compared themselves to Moses, who was in the top five of Bible characters as, that God had used. And as a result, they lose sight of how greatly God had used them because they compared themselves unfavorably uh, to their brother uh, Mo Moses. Now remember, Miriam, Miriam was, was a big deal, uh, who God used in a tremendous way. She's the one that saved Moses' life when he was a baby. She made it possible for Moses' mother to take care of him uh, after he had been adopted into an, an Egyptian family. Uh, she finagled things so that Moses' mother got to be uh, the nurse uh, for Moses. Uh, Miriam is the one that wrote the first praise song in all the Bible. Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. Uh, God had tremendous purpose, tremendous assignments for their lives. But they compared their assignment to Moses' assignment, to his purpose, and it robbed them of their joy. And so we're going to talk today about the comparison trap. 
why unhealthy comparison and competition robs us of so much joy in our lives. Now, I, we got to be careful that I'm not reading too much into the scripture here, but there certainly seems to be competition between the disciples, uh, Peter and John. They were competitive with each other, I believe. And I, and I think it's, it's grounded in evidence because look how the disciples were always fighting for the number one position. And Jesus was constantly uh, challenging them about that and, and, and talking to them about that. So I think the little hints we see, I'm going to exaggerate on maybe one or one or two of them. But uh, I, I think there's some evidence that Peter and John were competitive with each other. For example, running to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning. John, in his uh, gospel account, and his account of the resurrection, just puts in there, and by the way, we both ran to the tomb and I outran Peter. Okay, why was that necessary for the resurrection account? And yet he, he slips out of there. By the way, I'm a faster runner than Peter. Now, this one, I know I'm, I'm stretching it on this next one, but, you know, sometimes I joke that the reason why John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is because Peter had only written two. Peter wrote 1st and 2nd Peter, so John had to have one more than him, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. I'm, I'm sure that one um, is, is, is not true. But in this story, we can even see little hints of this. Jesus has just given Peter an amazing assignment. I mean, think about that. The creator of the universe says, sees us, names us, and says, you have an assignment, like, unlike anybody else's, in the greatest movement in world history, follow, as Christ followers, uh, the greatest movement, uh, fastest growing, biggest, largest, uh, most pervasive in every nook and cranny and language and, and ethnic group around the world, you're a part of that movement. And Jesus has a specific assignment just for you. Boy, that, and he had the same thing for Peter. Uh, shouldn't that make us stand up straight? And who cares how it compares to others? But that's not the case, even for Peter and John. It says in John 21, verse 20, uh, so after Jesus has just given Peter this big assignment, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, notice how Maybe I'm reading too much in there, but notice how John slips that in there. By the way, Jesus and me loved me most, was following them. Oh, by the way, this was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper. Just want to let you know, I, Jesus and I, really tight. Uh, and it said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, so Peter just, here's your assignment. I got my assignment from God. But then he turns, he says, oh, Lord, what about him? How does my assignment compare to his assignment that you've given to him. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And Jesus says the same thing to you. He says, I have chosen you. I've given you a unique assignment that only you can fulfill. Nobody can beat you at being you. Uh, only you can fulfill this mission from God. And, and, and he says, you, you just follow me. Don't worry how it compares to others. And some of you, you may feel unsuccessful compared to other people that you compare yourself to. But God is looking at the difficulties you've had to overcome. You've heard me talk about this before. Uh, the Chinese female Olympic divers. Uh, sometimes when they dive, it doesn't look like they did all that much better than anybody else. But here's the key. 
the judges are watching this. The, the judges look at it differently than we do as spectators. The only thing I can figure out about diving competition in the Olympics is, is it a big splash or a small splash? And so sometimes other divers make a bigger splash than the, the Chinese female Olympic divers. And so I'm like, oh, that's a better dive. No, they, the judges multiply their score by a degree of difficulty. And they always try the most difficult dives. So their score is getting multiplied by 1.2 or 1.3 rather than just times one. And so they end up winning the medals. Why? Because of degree of difficulty. And some of you, God has called to, to have a difficult journey. You've under, overcome things in your childhood. You've come overcome things in your past. You've come through some hard things. And you look around and say, yeah, but what I've accomplished for Jesus doesn't seem like much compared to so-and-so. Yeah, but if you multiply it by the degree of difficulty, you may be utterly surprised someday when you stand before God. And he says, you know, I gave you that tough assignment and you fulfilled it to the best of your ability. Well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Not somebody else, not somebody that you're jealous of, not somebody you compare yourself, not somebody on Facebook, not somebody on Instagram. The race marked out for you, that, Je that Jesus has marked out for you and you alone. Verse 22, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Uh, Betty Jamie Chung said, comparison with myself brings improvement. Comparison with others brings discontent. Uh, Nito Kuben writes, winners compare their achievements with their goals. And Layla Gifty Akita said, do not compete with anyone. Seek to exceed your own ex expectations. Now, there's nothing wrong with some tangible motivations. Uh, nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying it all has to be hyper-spiritual. Um, yeah, this is a little bit of a crazy story. I was just thinking about it the other day. Uh, my poor dad, he put up with so much for me when I was a, kind of a young, arrogant Christian. And I remember really kind of criticizing him because he had a really nice car and saying, you know, basically like Judas Iscariot with the, with the oil that was uh, anointed Jesus' feet, this could have been given to the poor. I said, you, you could drive a simpler car and give that money uh, to those in need, or you could support another missionary. And he was so gentle and kind to me that he said, Glenn, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. My dad devoted his life to um, raising money for world missions, and he was a businessman, president of a lumber company, and he devoted his life to that cause. But he, because as a president of a lumber company, he would often drive up to Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. to talk to customers there. And it just made his life a little easier and a little more enjoyable because he spent so much time in the car if he had a nicer car. And he tried to explain that to me. And he was so patient with this uh, young, arrogant uh, Christian that I was, uh, idealistic, uh, and, and so there's nothing wrong with some tangible motivations. We see this in David when he killed uh, Goliath. Now, I'm going to reverse the verses here, uh, flip them, and I'm going to flip this one here as well uh, so that you can kind of see what I'm talking about. 
So David comes up and, and Goliath is mocking God and taunting the Israelites. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So he has a spiritual motive. Who is this? He's dishonoring God. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from, from Israel? So he's like, this man has mocked the living God. By the way, if I kill him, what's in it for me? And so then going back to the previous verse, uh, it says, now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? Meaning Goliath. He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. So he says, I will do this uh, for the honor of God. But by the way, what else is there? Oh, the king's daughter in marriage, tax exempt for my family, and great wealth. So, so it's okay to use certain things um, to, to, mo to motivate us um, and, and, and to encourage us. But let's go back to the question that we are dealing with today. Uh, why does unhealthy comparison and competition rob us of so much joy in life? Well, number one, it distorts our ability to be grateful. I mean, just to be a follower of Christ, just to have a position in his movement, just to be a part of God's army, that should be enough. It shouldn't be how it compares with uh, other people's assignment. We have our assignment from the creator of the universe, to use a World War II illustration. Would you rather be a private in the American army or a general in the Nazi army? Would you rather be a general in an army that is eventually going to fail? Or would you rather be a private in the army that is eventually uh, going to succeed? Judy Garland writes, always be a first-rate version of yourself and not a second-rate version of someone else. Steve Jobs said, I love this, our time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. And then number two, it diminishes our love uh, for other people. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Number three, it disrupts uh, unity. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil uh, practice. Uh, Danielle Laporte writes, Comparison is a slippery slope to jealousy. And Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said, All your strength is in union. All your danger is in discord. You've heard me say this many times. I've seen God bless all kinds of churches. Rural churches, urban churches, big churches, small churches. Charismatic, charismatic churches, liturgical churches. I've seen God bless all kinds of churches except for one. He will not bless a disunified church. And so competition, comparison, disunity, that robs us of our power to fulfill our church's assignment from God as well as us individually, the assignment that God has given to us. And then number four, it misdirects our, uh, uh, our competitiveness. Hebrews 10, verse 23 let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's what we're called to do, to, 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 to not be tearing each other down in comparison, but spurring each other on, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. 
Uh, I apologize. This is a little bit of an esoteric story. Kimberly calls these my pathetic middle-aged man stories, which I should be flattered that she still considers me to be middle-aged. <laughs> and anyway, um, when I was running, I think I've told you before about Dan Henderson um, uh, that I ran track with at, at Wheaton College in cross-country and indoor and outdoor track. And uh, when I was a freshman, sophomore at Wheaton, I was always the number three runner on the cross-country team. A couple of upperclassmen were ahead of me, so I was always number three after the two of them. But they were going to graduate by my junior year, and so I said, now I'm going to be number one. When those two upperclassmen, when, when they're off the scene, I can be the number one runner. Well, what I didn't know is this uh, kid from Atlanta, Georgia, by the name of Dan Henderson, uh, he ended up being possibly the, the greatest uh, small college runner in NCAA history. I just the other night, I just happened to stumble upon his uh, record. He's still got the, after almost 50 years, he's the guy that ran the fastest 5,000 meters in the history of NCAA Division III. So he truly was just a phenomenon, a phenomenon of nature. Uh, and, uh, and he came. And I, when I first started running with him, I was not about to let this freshman take my number one spot. I, I had earned it. I'd waited two years for it. It's mine. The problem was he was just in another league from me. And so I ran trying to keep up with him every practice. And, and if you race every practice instead of practicing, because it was taking tremendous energy, it was almost like I was racing every day. Well, the Saturday race would come. I'd be all burned out. And eventually my health completely broke down, had a miserable season. So by the time the next season rolled around, um, uh, even by the time of spring track that year, I just wised up a little bit. And I said, look, Glenn, this guy's in another league. He's just way better than you. So instead of competing with him and comparing yourself to him, why don't you learn from him and why don't you be inspired by him? And so that's what I did, and, and, and my other years went much better than that. Then my senior year came, and he got injured, and so I got to be number one after all. Yeah. Okay, that, that's not in the spirit of what this message is all about. But here, here's one thing, and I hope this isn't too weird and esoteric, but uh, the other day, my, I think I've told you that my track coach in college, he died, and, and so I was going online and just kind of looking at the Wheaton website, and, and lo and behold... I was on, mentioned in a couple of records uh, that have still stood almost 50 years later at Wheaton College, where I went to college. Now, not individual records, not individual. I wasn't that good. But my name was still there because I had been on a relay, four by one mile, and the distance medley relay, two of them with, you guessed it, Dan Henderson. If you were on a relay team with Dan Henderson, you could put up a record that would stand for almost 50 years. And I thought about that. I thought, that is so much like the Christian life. If we're just always fighting with each other and comparing ourselves to each other and competing with each other, we're, we're just not going to do something that's going to last for, for eternity, something that's going to last for a long time. But if we cooperate with each other, like runners do on a relay race, not against each other, but with each other, you could accomplish something that will last for eternity. 
And then number five, it grieves God. I mean, if you ask a parent, what is the thing that probably grieves you the most? It's sibling rivalry. Uh, when your kids fight with each other. I mean, that's what happened with Moses and Aaron and, and Miriam. They were grown-ups, but they were still fighting with each other, still sibling rivalry. So what grieves the heart of God the most? Sibling rivalry. When we are rivals with each other as children of God, it grieves our Heavenly Father. So what can we do about it? Um, let's just look uh, as we just have a few minutes left here at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 through 26. And just five principles I want us to look at here. Principle number one, the fact that some people may possess superior skills in one way or another does not make them superior to me as a human being. And it certainly doesn't mean they have a superior purpose or assignment from God. Your assignment from God is unique to you. And it is as important as anybody else's that, is, that has ever lived. Uh, Bob uh, Goff writes, We won't be distracted by comparison if we are captivated with purpose. If we are captivated with our purpose in fulfilling the assignment, the race that God has marked out for us, we'll not be distracted by comparison because we are captivated by the purpose for which God has called us. Uh, a reporter once asked the legendary orchestra conductor, Leonard Bernstein, what was the most difficult instrument to play? What was the most difficult instrument to play? Without any hesitation whatsoever, he said, second fiddle. <laughs> I can always get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute now that's a problem. And yet if no one plays second, we have no harmony. All of us are essential in God's orchestra. His musical score that he wants to play for the world will not be complete if we don't play our particular part. And so many times we think it's a minor part. We think it's an unimportant part. And I think you'll be amazed when you get to heaven and find out how incredibly important the part that God called you to play um, was. I, I love this story. Uh, the Presbytery called in the pastor of a small church in Scotland, intending to remove him from his pastorate. So they were going to fire this pastor. They said, you've pastored here for over 20 years, and you never had a single person come to Christ. Been there for 20 years, not a single person came to Christ. And he said, well, there's, that's not true. Remember, there was that one child that came to Christ here in the last 20 years, uh, Davy, we, they're Scottish, so they said, we, we Davy. Well, who was that one convert that that pastor had, that incredibly unsu uh, unsuccessful pastor, the pastor they were going to kick out of his job? The, who was that one, con con who was we Davy? Well, it turned out to be David Livingston. And Africa is a Christian continent today, largely through the efforts of David Livingston and that unsuccessful pastor who, who led him to Christ. And, and that's the way our lives might be. We have no idea how God is using you. You have no idea how, how essential your particular calling is. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 14 and 15, even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, 
it would not for that reason stop being a part uh, of, of the body. Principle number two, everyone has faults, limitations, and insecurities, as well as assets. I must not exaggerate nor diminish the value of others in my own eyes. Everybody looks great from a distance. And so we go about comparing our insides with other people's outsides. And and that's why we get discouraged. That's what social media is all about. Putting your best foot forward and you know your insides. You compare it to the uh, polished, airbrushed image that a person presents to the world. And no wonder we get discouraged by the comparison. I love this quote by Pastor Stephen Furtick. He said, the reason we struggle with insecurity is because we compare our behind the scenes with everyone else's highlight reel, (laughs) okay? And Tim Heller said, don't compare your beginning to somebody else's middle. Uh, Sometimes we compare us just getting going in in a certain area of life with somebody that's that's been there for a while. This is certainly, this is off, this is a tangent right here, but this is the problem that we often get into with our finances, is that we try to have the lifestyle of our parents immediately in our marriage, uh, forgetting that they're in the middle of, of, of this thing and the accumulation of their finances, and we're just starting out. And so how do we make up the difference? We do it by racking up debt on our credit card so that we can have the same lifestyle that our parents have worked 20 or 30 years to get to, we try to have it instantly, and that's what gets us in trouble. We compare our beginning to someone else's middle. Verse 16, and if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would uh, the sense, where would the sense, where would the sense of smell be? And then principle number three, develop the habit of thankfulness. Be thankful for every good thing in life, no matter how small. Never let a disappointment occur without finding some aspect of it to rejoice over. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Principle number four, instead of being competitive, I can look for intrinsic good qualities in others like kindness, compassion, or humor. God creates us all equal. Uh, Picking it up with verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So that there should be no division in the body. But that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And then principle number five. Break the habit of thinking in comparisons. When someone else experiences something pleasant, enter into the joy of the occasion. Make a telephone call or write a letter and rejoice with those who rejoice. Verse 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. I'm going to close with one more 
as Kimberly would say, pathetic middle-aged man story, recounting past glory from, from, from the old days. But in high school, uh, my sophomore year, our track team didn't win a single meet, lost every single one. But with basically the same team members, the same group of, of, of athletes, the next year, my junior year, we won every single one, undefeated. First undefeated team in any sport in our school's history. And it was such an exciting year because like, I think it was like four of the seven meets uh, came down to the mile relay, which is the final event in a high school track meet, a four by 400 mile relay. And uh, um, it was very, very exciting. And a good friend of mine um, from my home church, and we were buddies at church, and then we were buddies in high school, and we ran track and cross country together in high school. His name was Jimmy Paul. And, and Jimmy Paul, in the second meet of the year, okay, went undefeated the whole year. But in just the second meet, we had to get a second. We had to get a second in the two-mile, which was the race right before the mile relay, in order to get it to the mile relay so that if we won the mile relay, we'd win the meet. And Jimmy Paul knew who he had to stick with, and almost like chewing gum, he stuck to this runner for two miles, eight laps, he just stuck to him like glue and outleaned him by one inch at the finish line, got that second place finish, which got it to the mile relay, which we won, and so we're undefeated. That week, few days after that, Jimmy, my friend, broke his foot out for the season, and everybody forgot about what he had done. But at the end of the season, looking back on it, I thought to myself, Oh my goodness, we finished undefeated, something no team had ever done before. And looking back to that second meet, that never would have happened if my friend Jimmy Paul had not by one inch after a two-mile race stuck with somebody for two miles, persevered, stuck to it, and barely out-leaned his opponent by one inch. If he doesn't do that, it makes all the difference in the world between an undefeated season and one with one defeat, one blemish. And I think that's the way it is when we get to heaven. We're going to realize that our one inch of effort, our one inch of leaning at the finish line, that one area of faithfulness, one word you're going to share with somebody this week that God leads you to share, one class of Sunday school kids that you teach, one, one person at work that you encourage. It's going to be that one thing. And all of a sudden we're going to get to heaven and look back on it and say the whole thing rose or fell on your faithfulness. So a follower of Christ, Purpose Church, jump out of bed tomorrow morning and say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will fulfill my assignment, not compared to anybody else's assignment. I will run the race that Christ has set out for me. And I'm going to do it with all my heart because God is going to use it in a staggering way that I will only appreciate and recognize when I get to heaven. Um, let's close with this. 
So I've been doing hip hop music since I was a little kid. Just a part of that culture, the way I dress, the way I talk is literally a part of who I am. And so now when I became a believer, when I was 16, God started to use that part of me in a way that I never even thought he could. And uh, you know, I, I can relate to people that look like me, talk like me, dress like me, but they're like, wow, this, this dude is, you know, rapping the gospel. This dude is rapping about Jesus. And so it literally blows people's minds just like it blew my mind, you know, when, when I saw it for the first time as well. A lot of times as an artist, I, I can struggle with discontentment in terms of looking at other artists' platforms. And uh, when I begin to compare myself to other people, and so it's like, as my platform was growing, it's almost like my heart wanted more, you know, and it, it wasn't always satisfied with the growth that was happening right before my eyes. Whenever I start to look at other artists, whether it's I'm at their shows or whether it's on their social media pages, sometimes, you know, my, my heart can be like, how is that not me? Whenever I'm going through these struggles, these wrestles, honestly, I'm never really questioning what, what God is doing. It's more so of, man, am I just inadequate? I mean, one of the number one things that helps shape my heart for more gratitude than discontentment is literally just diving into God's word. Uh, I feel like every time I dive into God's word, it humbles me because it really just puts the human heart in check. I mean, if I'm following my heart on a day-to-day -day basis, a lot of people say to follow your heart, I would be in trouble. You know, just having accountability and having uh, good conversations with brothers throughout the week, you know, and just having relatable situations, always pointing each other back to the word. And then um, just my, my daily, my daily uh, quiet time with God, going throughout the day and diving in his word and, and seeing beautiful things with him. Uh, allows me to, to be grateful for what I have.